0: this time we'll read in the Bible from Mark chapter 8 and then into chapter 9. Let's turn now to Mark chapter 8. The scripture reading will begin at verse 22 of Mark chapter 8, then we'll read to verse 10 of Mark chapter 9. There we read this word of God, beginning at Mark, chapter 8, verse 22. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him, He asked him if he saw aught, and he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him to look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, "Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. When he had called the people unto him, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Now follows the words of our text in verses 2 through 10, Mark chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter, and James, and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can wipe them. There appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, Peter answered and said to Jesus, "Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make thee make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias; For he wist or knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves. Questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. That's as far as you read in the Word of God. Let us, may the Lord now, um, may the Lord bless us in the reading of Scripture. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we give our attention now to verses 10, 2 through 10 of Mark chapter 9. Must understand that a pivotal event occurred in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Up until that point, here in verses 27 through 30, which records the question that Jesus asked Whom do men say that I am? Up to that point, Jesus was not so forward with his disciples. About making known his identity so publicly, so conclusively. However, with this question, Jesus seeks to make open now in Caesarea Philippi and for the rest of his ministry his identity, his agenda, or his work must move forward. To the goal that the Father had set him to accomplish. And with that in mind, then Jesus seeks from his disciples the, question, the answer to the question Whom do men say that I am? So they give their answers. Some say it's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some say it's Elijah from the Old Testament. He's come back. He went up into heaven. Now he's come back. Thou art Elijah. So they say. A few others' disciples said, well, others we've heard mentioned that thou art so-and-so, or one of the other prophets of the Old Testament, perhaps Isaiah. But Peter, on behalf of the eleven disciples, answer emphatically, mentioned here in Mark chapter 8 very briefly, thou art the Christ. their minds and hearts it was clear thou art the son of David the Christ the son of the living God the promised one Peter and the disciples were correct having established that openly decisively before the disciples and the larger group of those who also followed Christ and large multitude, Christ then immediately thereafter, in verses 31 and following, tell his disciples, and this is what the Christ came to do, he will be captured, the chief priests, the elders and the scribes will take hold of me and they will crucify me, but on the third day I shall rise again from the dead. From that point, there follows two events that prepare for our text this morning. First, after rebuking Peter for not understanding not only what Jesus had mentioned regarding his death and resurrection, but also in that way of being a temptation to him, which the devil delighted in, Jesus teaches the true nature of of discipleship to him. Unlike what Peter thought, being a disciple of Jesus and following Jesus will go from where they were at to great glory in Jerusalem. Jesus teaches, no. True discipleship is connected to my cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross of suffering for my sake and follow me through life, wherever I direct your life, and follow me according to my word. And those who do not do that and are ashamed of Christ, Jesus says in the coming again, when I appear, I will be ashamed of them before the Father. Those who do take up their cross, having denied themselves themselves, and following me, I will confess before my Father in heaven. In the day when I will appear in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. And the question is, well, what is that glory Jesus would receive? Did Jesus know what that, did he know what that glory was and what that glory would be? And how could he be so sure that he was going to receive that glory? And and the text speaks as though it's actually accomplished. The answer to that is found in the text this morning concerning the transfiguration of Jesus. Then Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 9, goes on to say, There be some of them that stand here in his audience which shall not taste of death, they will not die till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Well, what kind of kingdom was that? Was it what Peter was thinking when he rebuked Jesus? Jesus would never die. That's not the kind of kingdom he came to establish. What kind of kingdom is it? And when would it come in great power so that those to whom Jesus speaks, would be eyewitnesses of that power and the glory of that kingdom in its coming. In the Lord's infinite wisdom, he answers those questions by having inspired in chapter 9 the transfiguration of Jesus, to which we give our attention this morning. Notice for a few moments the glory, glorious event of Secondly, the main reasons, or the wise reasons, and thirdly, the resulting significance of the transfiguration of Jesus, especially for the church, for you and me today. After the events that we just mentioned in chapter 8, especially after his revelation openly, of his crucifixion and death and his resurrection, Jesus goes into a time of seclusion for prayer with the Father in heaven. To do that, Jesus did not take all 12 disciples with him, but he selected only three, Peter, James, and John. This selection was not unusual. Jesus had done this in the past, with the resurrection of Jairus's daughter from the dead Mark chapter 3 or sorry chapter chapter 5 he would do that later in the garden of gethsemane when he goes deeper into the garden he selects Peter, James and John once again to accompany him while he wrestled before the father in prayer with that cup of suffering so he does that here as he goes up to the mount top of the mountain for prayer with his Father. And by doing so, Jesus is not discriminating, he's not being unrighteous to the other nine disciples. For Jesus is teaching that in his kingdom, in his church, God distributes among his officers their God given gifts and abilities, and the Lord according to their abilities and gifts and their place within. The church, according to his wisdom, gives them their positions and places to work. So Peter, James, and John. Peter being the chief apostle, James and John are selected according to their abilities and gifts and God's wisdom of placing them in that position to see something in the text that would be necessary for their work later in their ministry in the New Testament. Also we notice that Jesus needed fellowship with the Father in prayer. That may be striking to us because is not Jesus the Son of God? Why would the Son of God need prayer with the Father? Doesn't he have everything? The text reveals, beloved, Jesus as the man in his human nature. Yes, according to his divine nature. He owns all things. He has no need. He's independent, all-sufficient. But in his human nature, he is dependent. He is not all-sufficient. needs God to sustain him in his human nature for all of his work in his ministry. He is like us, beloved, in all things except for sin. Appears then in the text as the man Jesus Christ, as the servant of Jehovah, to serve Jehovah and the church according to the purpose that God had sent him to do. And in this moment, after revealing to his disciples openly Yes, I will be taken by wicked hands of the representatives of the Old Testament but ungodly church, the chief priests, those in the office of elder, the scribes, and the chief elders of the church representing the offices of elder, priest, and prophet in that day. They will take hold of me, the true Christ, and crucify me. Before that reality all the horror that would be involved in that, he needs to go to the Father for spiritual encouragement. While Jesus was on the mountain with the three disciples in his presence, with the Father in prayer, our Father answers the prayer of Christ with an amazing transfiguration. It does not appear, according to the text or the parallel passages that also speak of the transfiguration, that Jesus knew in his human nature ahead of time that there would be a transfiguration. He receives a special answer then to his prayer as he received it in the Garden of Gethsemane when God sent an angel to him from heaven to minister to him in the garden. So God, in a special way, answers his prayer on the mountain of transfiguration. As he is in communion with the Father, speaking to him, suddenly he is transfigured. His clothing, whatever the color may have been before the transfiguration, in the transfiguration it was shining white, white as snow, So white, the text informs us, that it was whiter than what someone who operates a laundromat or washes textiles or clothing, whiter than what that expert could make white. And not only his clothing, but also his face shined as bright as the sun. What did that mean when he was changed, transfigured? His figure, his face, his appearance was changed. His appearance was changed in, we must understand, his human nature, in his body, even his clothing. And he was changed from what the disciples had seen before, normal clothing, someone who looked like them, Now, change from that earthly sphere to the heavenly sphere, shining with the brightness of the sun, like the angels. The Father gave to Jesus that beautiful transfiguration of heavenly glory, just briefly. But it was long enough for two visitors to be sent by the Father to Jesus to speak to him. The Father sent Moses and Elijah to visit Jesus and to speak with him. You know from the Old Testament that, well, Elijah had not died. God had taken him up in a whirlwind with the chariot of fire escorting him into heaven was not buried one of the few exceptions in scripture of those who enter into heaven and he received his resurrection body in heaven but also Moses had his resurrection body God had buried him according to what we read in the Old Testament and then what we, according to what we read in the book of Jude the devil argued about the body of Moses what happened After God had buried Moses, he raised him from the dead and brought His Moses into heaven in his soul and in his body, his resurrection body. Which was the point of contention that the devil brought before God. Nevertheless, because the word of God is sure, and because of all the Old Testament types and shadows are sure, In this Christ, Moses must have his resurrection body and may have his resurrection body as he stands before Christ. What were they talking about? Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus in this resurrection glory about what Jesus had revealed earlier in chapter 8. Talk to him about his death. And about his resurrection. Moses spoke to Jesus about his death from the viewpoint of all the Old Testament shadows. Like the sacrifices in the tabernacle. And in the temple in Jerusalem. All of the pictures which God had put into the tabernacle in the worship. Or the worship in the temple to point the people of God to whom? Jesus. Jesus. Moses speaks to Jesus as the representative of all of those types and shadows now being fulfilled in this Jesus, the Christ. Elijah speaks to Jesus from the viewpoint of all of the prophecies, beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15, or made very clear in the book of Isaiah, like Isaiah 53 and represents all of those Old Testament prophecies and promises concerning what this Jesus would do for us and for the glory of God. And together, they speak to Jesus from the viewpoint of the law and the prophets about the work Jesus was doing and would soon accomplish as he said, To his disciples, I will be crucified, I will be killed, but I will rise again the third day. Briefly, they talked face to face with Jesus. And Jesus saw in Moses and he saw in Elijah, in those glorified resurrection bodies, what his Glory would be in the human nature. And he not only saw it in them, but he saw it as one himself experiencing briefly and miraculously that glory. Amazing. And then there follows the response of Peter. Blurted out a response which was not very wise, showed that Peter did not have full understanding of what was happening. He said in the text that, Well, Lord, we should make three tabernacles one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter didn't know what to say. He thought, Well, maybe it would be a good idea that we build a booth, a shack for the three of them, a temple. And then they could stay on the earth in that glory. They could continue in that condition together and commune together. And they could stay here on the earth for a little while. And maybe the other disciples could come here and see this too. Peter did not understand. And he did not understand because he did not receive the faith to know perceive to understand and then respond properly to this glorious spectacle before him there would come a day when he would understand when the spirit would be poured out he would preach of that glory he speaks of it later in 2nd 2 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 but now did not understand A special cloud covered Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in the presence of the Father. What Jesus saw in that cloud, we don't know. But that cloud represented the presence of the Father, like the Shekinah cloud in the Old Testament. God was there. And the Father spoke. In the presence of Moses... And Elijah, concerning Jesus, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He is righteous. He is holy. He is true. And then commands the church, hear his word. Listen, disciples, and the church, to him. His word is true. His word is salvation. As quickly as the transfiguration had come, then suddenly it's finished. The cloud is gone. Moses and Elijah returned to heaven. It's finished. Jesus looked now the same as he had before the transfiguration, back to his regular clothing. The shining of his face was gone. He looks again, as described in Isaiah 53, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, not comely that we should behold him. Except for one thing, as made known in the other parallel passages, his face the disciples saw, not in a, that it was shining in any way, but his face was set to go to Jerusalem They could see in his eyes the determination. I am on a mission from my Father in heaven. I am determined to go and accomplish what the Father sent me to do. So he taps his disciples on the shoulders, tells them we must be going on. We must go forward. We must move on. On the way down the mountain, Jesus commanded his disciples, Now don't tell anyone what things ye have seen. Don't tell anyone till I have risen from the dead, till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Until then, you must keep it a secret. They were given the grace to do so. They take hold of that saying of Jesus. Still, they don't understand. They don't understand what the transfiguration was about. What did this resurrection from the dead mean? What does this have to do with the kingdom or even our discipleship mentioned at the end of chapter 8? Why may we not talk about the resurrection? Although they had many questions, they kept that a secret until after the resurrection, until, in fact, after Pentecost. After Pentecost, then they understood the reasons and the significance for the transfiguration. What were the reasons? There were two reasons concerning Jesus, and then three reasons concerning the church. Concerning Jesus, number one, That transfiguration was a confirmation of his faithfulness to the Father. The Father said within that glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And doesn't that sound familiar? It is a repetition of what the Father had said about Jesus at the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River. The voice came out of heaven and said in the presence of John the Baptist, "This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased." Now that same voice, heard by the other by the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they hear, "This is my beloved son." They have confirmed before them, and Jesus has confirmed, "He is holy. He is righteous." Since the day of his official ordination in his earthly ministry, according to his human nature, at age 30, he has continued down the road of his ministry in righteousness, to fulfill all righteousness. He had not deviated when the devil tempted him in the wilderness. He said, No, I will not bow down to thee. I will not turn the stones into bread. I will not jump down from the temple. No, I will be faithful to my Father in heaven. And every step of the way since the beginning of his ministry, he was faithful always to reveal the truth of the word of God. Whether he was preaching, whether he was doing miracles, Whether he was doing anything else, everything set forth the true word of God. So, what Moses represented and what Elijah represented, Jesus was fully fulfilling in his ministry. And to encourage Jesus, the Father said that in the mouth, in the presence of two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. Who could say, yes, from the viewpoint of the law, yes, righteous, from the viewpoint of the prophecies, yes, righteous. He speaks the truth that the Old Testament word of God proclaims. Very clearly then, Jesus is confirmed in the presence of, of Moses and Elijah as the true Son of God. Though all, many of those to whom he preached would not confess him, would not admit this is the Son of God, the Christ, Emmanuel, Father in the presence of Moses and Elijah, says yes. That confirmation, beloved, doesn't mean that Jesus ever doubted his identity. He had no sin. This motivated Jesus to press forward to the horror that was set before him in the cross for the honor of his Father in heaven, for the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He would press forward to that goal. But then secondly, to encourage Jesus that transfiguration which he hears the confirmation of the father is a foretaste of the goal of his redemptive work the goal of his redemptive work was certainly there at the cross of Calvary we agree we believe that is the foundation of all of our salvation all of our righteousness before God in that cross we have the right to Established, the inheritance established to everlasting life and glory with the Father. Nevertheless, the cross is not the end point of the ministry of Jesus. That is not the end of his work as the prophet, priest, and king of Jehovah. Jesus must look beyond the cross, to the other side, to the glory the heavenly glory of which he receives a foretaste. What was that heavenly glory? It's described in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, in an interesting way. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, we as God's people, as strangers and pilgrims in the earth, must look by faith unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, And then it says, who, for, and it doesn't say the heavenly glory that was set before him, although that's true. But the Holy Spirit has inspired here, in contrast to the grief and the sorrow with which he was acquainted all of his life long, in contrast to that there is the joy that was set before him. The joy of complete victory, the joy of complete life in body and soul, in uninterrupted fellowship with the Father in heaven in the presence of his saints and the holy angels. A life of no more battles against the seed of the serpent, but complete victory as God had promised in the beginning for the joy of finishing the work which the Father had called him to do. That was a foretaste for him. Do you children understand what a foretaste is? A foretaste is a little taste of something that is coming. It's not the full amount. It's just a little tiny little taste. Maybe your mothers give you that experience. They've made you a very large birthday cake. It's there on the counter. And of course you may have your large piece until later in the day after the party and all your friends are with you. But she may take your finger and put it on the icing and just touch a little bit of the icing and put that in your mouth. Give you a foretaste, a little taste of the full piece of cake you will receive after the party is finished perhaps at the appointed time similarly but in a far greater way Jesus as it were has his finger taken by the father and placed in the icing of that heavenly glory and placed on his lips to get a little taste a small real taste of what the Father had in store for him after the suffering and death he must endure. There is on the other side, for body and soul, immortality, heavenly glory, and unending joy with me, the Father, in heaven. So the Father declares... In that foretaste to Jesus, that was an encouragement to Jesus, who so loved the Father in heaven, he was willing to lay down his life. He was willing to drink that cup of wrath and endure that inexpressible suffering for him. In that foretaste, he was given the encouragement to press forward in that love to do everything the Father had sent him to do. Then, for the church, there are also three reasons. Number one, the transfiguration of Jesus confirms to you and me the identity of this Jesus set forth in Scripture. The disciples had earlier made known, Thou art the Christ. We might wonder well, were they correct? Is it true? That what these men said is true? Is it? There booms out of the cloud of glory, this is my beloved Son. There is that witness, infinitely righteous and perfect witness. God Himself declares an absolute yes to that confession of faith of Peter this is my Son, this is my Christ. Thus, for you and me, there is no question. It's absolutely true. This is the Christ. This is the only begotten Son of God. This is our true prophet, priest, and king, sent by the Father to accomplish our redemption for us, and also in us, and through us, by his Spirit. Number two. To confirm for us the perfect righteousness and obedience of Christ, which he accomplished, God gives to us this event of the transfiguration. That obedience of Christ is confirmed by the transfiguration itself, as we've mentioned, but notice also this aspect of the transfiguration. What happens after the transfiguration? Transfiguration shows that in a certain sense, Christ could have gone directly to glory, just like Elijah. And Jesus could have avoided the curse, could have avoided the cross altogether. But Notice, beloved, though Jesus tasted that glory with the Father, which was his most precious possession, Nevertheless, Jesus was willing. He was content to give it up. I'm finished. And have it removed and return, as it were, into this path of humiliation again in order to lay down his life for you and me. Though we sinned against him, though we were his enemies, he still, as it were, came back out of that foretaste of glory back into the darkness of suffering under God's curse for you and me. That emphasizes, beloved, the unswerving love of Jesus Christ to you and me. That's how committed he was for our salvation. And number three, that transfiguration gave to the apostles and to the church a clear glimpse of And to the glory Jesus would receive after his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. What Jesus is doing is preparing his apostles as eyewitnesses of his glory. They would need to go out and to preach the word without the New Testament scriptures. Well, How would they know what to say about Jesus who died and then rose again from the dead? What about that subject of rising from the dead and ascending into heaven. What is that glory he has received? They wouldn't know what to say. The Lord gives them the opportunity to be eyewitnesses of his glory so they might see not only but then speak of what they have seen to those whom they are sent to preach. The full gospel of the death and death the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now that may raise a question for us today. Well, that's nice for them. They had the opportunity to see personally and firsthand the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But what about us today? Are not we at a disadvantage? We weren't there on the Mount of Transfiguration how are we going to speak of the glory or know of the glory that he had received after his resurrection? According to Second um, Peter chapter one, verse 16, <clears throat> Apostle Peter himself assures us that we, who are not with Peter are not at a disadvantage. He says, verses 16 and following, For we who preach the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's referring to what happens in the Mount of Transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Now to assure us that though you and I were not eyewitnesses of what Peter was, to assure us that we are not at a disadvantage The Holy Spirit adds verse 19. We, even Peter himself says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Peter, And we have a more sure word of prophecy concerning that glory of Jesus Christ. Where do we have that? Here, in the infallibly inspired Holy Scriptures, which then verses 20 and 21 teach. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This word of God is the infallible truth concerning the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ which he received from the Father in his exaltation because of his finished work in his humiliation. That's the word which condemns the enemies of Christ. That's the word which silenced the devil and his accusations against Moses and the presence of his resurrection body in heaven. This is the word which accomplishes our salvation through faith by the Holy Spirit. And that is the word which we need to hear to encourage us in our discipleship in this life. Thus, beloved... Hear him. The Father says, Listen to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. There is no salvation to be heard in the voices and the word of man. There is no salvation to be heard in the voice of A salvation by your own good works or your own righteousness. There is no true salvation in the voices of wickedness. The voice of the devil which tempts you to forsake the Lord as he did to Jesus and seek your own way. Doing your own will to your own glory to your own pleasure. trouble is, beloved, it's to those voices that we are prone to listen. By nature, we won't believe Jesus. We won't hear him. We're prone to believe what is convenient, what sounds nice, what's false, what's easy. We're prone to embrace that which does not require, as Jesus taught regarding true discipleship, at the end of chapter 8, self-denial. That is, not just the denial of a few things in life, but a denial of me. I must deny me, my wisdom, my will, and take up the cross of having to lay down my life and suffer for Jesus, who's at God's right hand, and then follow him in life wherever he leads. That's not what we want to do. We don't want to follow him in the straight and narrow way that leads to everlasting life. Yet we must hear him, for there is no salvation apart from him. He is our only redemption. His word, and in his word, is our only salvation. The Father declares, hear him. How shall we hear him? We need that Jesus, in his glory, in his sovereignty, in his almighty grace, to shine upon us, not to consume us as he does to his enemies, but in that light of his glory, by the Holy Spirit, to work in you and me the true knowledge that, yes, this is the Christ, he is the light of my salvation. And then also by the Holy Spirit to be assured that he is mine and I belong to him in body and soul, in life and in death. He is my light and my salvation. Believe that, beloved. Believe that Jesus Christ was crucified and is now permanently set at God's right hand in that heavenly glory of which he received a very brief foretaste in his transfiguration and believe that he speaks to you in his word from that glory and trust that word of Jesus Christ. Remember, beloved, the Lord knows the pathway you must take. He walked a road of humiliation. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not as Peter thought. Lord, be it far from thee, the path that thou must walk is not a road of humiliation. It's from here to great glory in this earth. The Lord said, No. He rebuked Peter sharply. That is not my path in this life. It's a path of humiliation. And so for you as a disciple of Christ, having died with him and crucified with him, your path in life is a pathway of suffering for me, for my sake. That's the way the Lord leads us in life. You must suffer for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his gospel, For the sake of Christ himself to which you are joined in body and soul. The Lord from his glory speaks to you his precious promises and his word. Speaks to you the forgiveness of your sin because we're like Peter. We don't always understand, do we? We're like the man who cried out before Jesus, Lord, help thou my, what? Unbelief. Yes. The Lord speaks to us his word to work in us true faith. He reminds us that he will not leave us nor forsake us. He is with us by his spirit every step of the way that he leads you as his disciples as he sends you through tribulation for his sake that weight of suffering the Lord reminds us, works for us a far greater weight of glory with him fear not beloved he is the captain of your salvation he is the anchor of your soul trust in his word do not doubt the scriptures do not doubt his doctrine his doctrine is true believe that word of Jesus Christ is true absolutely sure and it is absolutely sure Jesus not only received a foretaste of his glory but he is anchored in that glory at God's right hand never to leave that glory and that one is the author and finisher of your faith find in him alone your rest and comfort and peace for your troubled soul and believe that he has obtained for you something very precious that after you have suffered a while Christ will take that cross and replace it and set upon you that crown of everlasting joy and glory with him. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and faithful God in heaven, grant that we may be faithful disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. May our worship on the Lord's Day with thee be also a foretaste of that glory thou wilt give us in full measure an everlasting joy in thy presence in heaven. Lord, be faithful unto us, sustain us by thy preserving grace, work within us by thine irresistible spirit, that we may have true faith, and a faith which is abundantly fruitful unto the praise of thy name. For Jesus' sake, amen.